Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Sometimes my role in this is to say, hold, just what? Wait, no, not quite. Please be clear. Uh, don't junk our entire liberal system because your passion against injustice you think is worth it. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today is Andrew Sullivan. Very quick backstory because we talked about this at the opening of the podcast, but we, Andrew and I have been arguing on the internet for a long time. We go through periods of agreement, periods of argument. I think we've been in a period of argument more recently. Um, Andrew's been focusing on a lot of identity and political correctness issues where he and I, I would say, hold different views. But our, our arguments were not really getting anywhere. Um, and I think that we'd fallen into a place where we were not understanding the other one very clearly. And, and so we talked about doing another conversation. And I'm very glad we did. This was a great object lesson for me in the difference between arguing on Twitter. Um, we did that at one point in this. And I would say absolutely no light got shed in our disagreements whatsoever. We did some arguing, uh, writing back and forth. And I do think there was value in that. Um, all, you know, I think we were able to talk through interesting ideas, but I'm not sure either of us felt like we were talking to the other one. Um, there was a th there were good points being made, but I would say a lack of mutual understanding. And in this conversation, it, it feels real. It felt really differently to me. Um, I'm not saying that we convinced the other of anything, but I think we're able to trace the boundaries of what our disagreement actually is a lot more closely. I think the the nature of the format allows for to see, you know, maybe you agree 40 percent and disagree 60 percent. Um, it's a very different experience. And so just that meta level uh, realization of just how different these arguments are had in the different formats that, uh, at least for me, that I'm working in is really interesting. I mean, you you realize that you're not you're not just having an argument. You're having an argument mediated by a platform. And you know, if you want to agree more, maybe have a podcast. <laughs> if you want to fight more, maybe go on Twitter. Um, there's a so there's an interesting, I think, meta thread of this whole thing. But I think this is a good discussion of some of these issues. And if I don't know that I changed Andrew's mind or that he changed mind, I think that we got a lot closer to what these disagreements are really about. So I'm grateful to him for being here and for being willing to have this conversation uh, as, a, as a further expression of our, our long-running discussions. Uh, before we get to it, I'm having another Ask Me Anything episode. So please send questions to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with AMA in the title. Again, we're going to do another of these Ask Me Anything episodes in a couple of weeks. And if you'd like to hear me answer your question, or at least hear your question put to me, send it to EzraKleinShow at Vox uh, with AMA in the title. That said, here is Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. It's nice to be back. So we've been arguing and sometimes agreeing, but arguing on the internet for what, like 15 years now? Yes, probably. I remember, <laughs> I remember how long it took me to get my first Daily Dish link. 
Oh, as really? a young blogger. It was, it was literally, I, I like, I was trying for a long time and I think it was like two or three years in that I got my first daily dish. Like you and Kevin Drum were my hardest mountains to climb. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just remember those days, those early blogging days as so much better than they are now, than things are now. I mean, don't, I mean, I know I'm being nostalgic, but I think you wrote something the other day about, about the generosity of the links that you would make, the, the, the actual attempt to actually produce a counter argument that was addressing in good faith the arguments of the other side that really did happen it wasn't nice you know i was thinking about this the other day because i think people get caught up on ideas of civility a bit blogging wasn't nice um like people like were fisking right weren't you the one who came up with the word fisking yep like people are fit like you know it's like here's a paragraph and then you're like cutting it to shreds and here's another paragraph and why they're so wrong but it had this quality i think because of the link ecosystem that you wrote expecting to be read and replied to by the person you were writing about, and also because it was small. And the thing I often see now is that nobody writes as if they expect the person they're talking about to read them. And on Twitter in particular, it's like, it's for your people, not their people. And I do think that changes the nature of the discourse. I also have this, you know, and I feel like I talk about a little bit ad nauseum uh, on the show, this nostalgia for where things were 10 years ago. And I... I don't know. Like, I, I do think it was better. Yeah, I do, too. And I, But I think there's something inevitable about the the pace of of online media that that incre- I mean, I felt during the dish for 15 years that in the last five of them, I could feel the pace picking up even within blogging. You know, so yeah. I was I by the last five years, I was churning out what I my team and I were were churning out a lot more. And and it was all rewarded with traffic. You couldn't yeah. lose. Um, and then Twitter came and said, you think that was fucking fast? Right. <laughs> but the point about the n- not niceness of it is that most of the not niceness of it was ripping to shreds other people's arguments. It wasn't accusing them of being a bad human being. I mean, it, you would, there'd be, you know, in public life, you have, you can throw epithets around that aren't deeply personal, stupid, wrong, misguided. That is deeply personal. I hate it when people call me misguided. It's the worst thing you can say to me. <laughs> I just think it's I think it's probably the most condescending thing you can say to anybody. Yeah, misguided. that's fair. Uh, um, but this actually, here's a way I think things have gotten better and actually speaks to what I wanted to, to have you on the show again, which is you and I have been, um, we were arguing over, uh, we both wrote pieces um, arguing about a piece you wrote on political cults and Christianity. You've right. been sort of writing about me and occasionally Vox in your column. And I was thinking that it was the first time in our sort of like long past of arguing that I felt like we were just talking past each other. And so one thing that I think has changed and is good is podcasting, where you even compared to blogging, there is this capacity to like sit down and talk things out for a long time. And, and so one of the things that I wanted to do was to sort of try to reboot the conversation we're having in a place okay. to see if we can get a little bit clearer of a model of where the other one is coming from. Sure. Absolutely. Um, how about it? <laughs> so- <laughs> I, I mean... Yes. Well, you, you start because uh, uh, are you talking now about the uh, the America's New Religions piece? That, that Yeah. That well, I'm particular... actually talking about in general. I think that um, here's my here's my macro theory of, of the case coming to the conversation, which I'll, I'll put as much on the table as I can. I think that my writing is representing to you a certain tendency in the debate that you are frustrated by and in some ways fearful of. And um your writing to me is sort of like the uh, like the, the other side of the same debate. And then, you know, the more I read it, the more I think we may 
there are places where I actually think our disagreements come from a, an unusual kind of agreement about what's going on. And so I kind of want to explore that. I want to I want to try to explore into um, what what some of these conversations are actually about, because I, I often think that the way we have them in writing and in public flattens them to their manifestations as opposed to the core kind of concerns that animate them. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, it does. So let, let's start here. Talk a bit a bit about the piece on political cults and Christianity, America's new religions. G- give me the kind of like high level of, of the argument there. Oh, I do think that the decline and collapse of a lived Christianity and of lived religion is an important fact of our sociology, of our emerging society. It's, it's a striking shift, especially among the young, where traditional religion has sort of fallen uh, off the radar screen. But I do believe that the religious impulse is ineradicable from the human mind and soul, and that therefore it will somehow manifest itself. Uh, If traditional religions have failed to sustain themselves, and I think they are for a whole variety of reasons, then I worry that other forms of religion that are actually more dangerous, <laughs> less well thought out, uh, in some ways um, less forgiving, and collectively sort of almost maddening. Um, and America's always had this impulse everywhere. It, it, it's what this country's kind of about. Uh, it's why it was founded, really. Um, this freedom of religion and its religious culture was founded. I mean, started off by a bunch of completely nutcase Anabaptists. Therefore, it's particularly important in America. Uh, Tocqueville was uh, very smart about this, as about many other things. But it, it was the sense that you could have this kind of limited government only if your higher aspirations and your greater belief in the whole were somehow separated from politics. And when those two things, that's removed, uh, then you have what one might call a religious politics, which is one on a very different, which whose stakes have to be infinitely larger than usual politics. And I think I see, I, I definitely see some of that in the culture at large. I was painting a, a picture that was obviously uh, broad and I couldn't, you could write a book about it, but uh, but that's my basic feeling, yes. And that there's a zeal uh, on both sides, both the cult of Trump and this cult of social constructionism, that are uh, get carried away uh, with a sort of almost monomaniacal view of the world. So, what separates, in your view, a cult from a group or a coalition or an ideology? It's a cult where some things are absolutely unquestioned or unquestionable. In other words, it doesn't have a political orthodoxy. Uh, It has doctrine. And it requires profession of this doctrine constantly to affirm your good standing as a member of this religious community. Uh, It's public and it brooks no compromise because it is ultimately about the ultimate things, the things you most care about, the things you most are concerned with, which explains everything, everything. It can, it, it can tell you what to do in any part of your life. It is the framework with which you live your life. 
And if you come to believe it's true in a very almost religious sense, you will be inevitably an illiberal political actor. And that's, that's my concern. So here's my here's what I responded to in that and and the place where I think I diverge. I actually don't disagree necessarily with that as a description of some of the groups now. I just don't think it's that different from what we've been seeing in American politics or in global politics basically forever, which is to say that I think you go back 50 years. I think you go back 100 years. I think you go back 150 years. And what you have are more hegemonic identities that are playing out in American life, Christianity, of course, being one of them. But but American politics, um, you know, it has its parties, but it also has its nostrums and its uh, beliefs. And so, for instance, the period in which we are at war in the Cold War is a period where the stakes of politics, I think, properly are, are understood to be very existential. But, you know, the period when we have the Civil War, the period when we have, I mean, for most of American political life, we were just literally a much more illiberal place with fewer people allowed or able to vote, much more voter suppression, much less freedom of speech. You know, I think about what it meant um, to be an atheist and an out and public atheist 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and there they're just like atheists didn't have the power. To say this isn't okay, um, you know, they were just like, you know, that was a threat to what it meant in a fundamental way to be American. Um, there appears to be some dispute about the sourcing of the George H. W. Bush quote that atheists aren't true Americans, but has not actually been disproven and certainly reflects um, a view at the time. And so this is this is my my pushback to you. What makes you believe? that this tendency in life in American life is getting worse now? What makes you believe that the political groupings in America are more extreme today than they have been at other times? Well, you could you could there's a there's a policy question where you can look and you can see that the divisions are extraordinarily deep. You can see that one side is not persuadable, really, uh, up to a certain point. I mean, uh, and this goes with the Trump supporters, too. It, it's a cult. And it's a non-negotiable cult. It doesn't really matter what this guy does or says because he's on this side and because this side for many of them represents actually a religious and existential truth about their own identity. Uh, you're never going to get him below 40% or roughly thereabouts. It's going to be very hard to do that. Similarly, uh, on the other side, you also have this extraordinary lockstep uh, fanaticism, really. And part of that, of course, existed before, but Trump has made it immensely worse. Now, and let me just make that point clearly, because I don't, I don't want to minimize the distinction between a bunch of uh, postmodern lefties on campuses and the Republican Party. I think that the, the election of Donald Trump, the nomination of Donald Trump is worse. It's, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievably worse. But it has evoked, understandably, an extreme response to it and to him, which I think, especially on racial gender matters, for example, that I think, I think is understandable, but probably, not probably, but definitely foolish and, and actually helps him in the long run. That's my concern. So I know I actually do not doubt a lot of the thesis that Trump creates backlash to him that ends up helping him. The, the line I always use on this is Trump makes everything he touches more like himself. 
he creates the arguments and he creates the kinds of politics that he wants to have. And he provokes people to react to him in a way that validates his view and his us versus themism of the world. To me, what is interesting in your thesis, as I understand it, is we have seen a reduction in organized Christianity in this country. And in the vacuum left by that is being filled by these relig- these I'm sorry, political groups, political cults that are different in nature, different in character, and are leading American politics in a more extreme direction than was true before. And then when I try to sort of like really push that and push it against where we were in in I think what a lot of people consider to be the golden eras of American politics, what we were accepting, what we were submerging seems to me to be a lot worse and seems to me, to your point about cults being a place where things can be unquestioned, seems to me to be uh, a a much more um, kind of terrifying age. And I think there's something in our ability to look at postmodern leftists on campus now and see something so profound in their efforts to achieve, you know, what I would see, but also what they would see as a more racially just society. But then also to look back 60 or 70 years ago at a time when we had a very, very, very racially unjust society and not see that as a period of political cultishness, not see that as a period when our groups were so strong that they were able to, and, and so hegemonic in some ways, that they were able to push tremendous amounts of injustice under the rug. And the the reason I think this is important, and the reason I think it's an important um, debate to have, is that my, my big picture view on what's going on right now is that we're in a period, and I want to talk about this with you, of really quite rapid demographic change, quite rapid um, immigration change, quite rapid social change. And a lot of groups are gaining the power to come out and make political demands that they didn't really have the power to make before. And so we look around and we see all of this, what, what seems like identity politics and, and, and these kinds of very intense claims and behaviors and all of these different cultures that are colliding into each other. And we look backwards and we see a politics that um, looks to us, and I think one could argue with this, but looks to us to have been more stable and to have had more consensus and to have more uh, on some level calm. And yet that politics had in some ways a much stronger form of identity politics, but because it was majoritarian identity politics, it didn't track at least to the majority to be the same thing. But it was no less extreme. And in a lot of ways, it allowed much less room for dissent. And so the big picture question I think that is a hard one to answer here is, is some of the shakiness in our society actually something to be optimistic about? Is it something that that happens as society goes through a, a period where more voices can get heard? Or is it something dangerous, a sign of a, a, a I think, as you put it in your writings, a creeping illiberalism or a country coming apart? Well, I hope it's the former. Let's put it that way. I think we probably both <laughs> hope that, right? I mean, it's, if this is a, if these are- I'm an, Now I'm a nihilist. <laughs> <laughs> if these are what we might call sort of growing pains of uh, a democracy becoming more inclusive, uh, and it will all settle down in a while, and we'll all get along again and be able to treat each other as fellow citizens as opposed to white people and POC and all the other men, women, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then great. I just, and maybe it's by, because my background is in political theory, I sort of read all these people a long time ago, the, the, the origin of these ideas, and they are so profoundly hostile to the liberal experiment, openly, proudly hostile to liberalism, that I can't believe that importing them into our politics, in fact, having them 
have a huge influence on one of the major political parties is uh, is good for liberalism. I don't. I think it's actually threatening. And I think it's... Can you define the kind of liberalism you're talking about there just so people aren't kind of lost between political theory liberalism and left liberalism? I mean liberalism like in the in a sort of political theory sense in as much as yeah. there are conservatives within a liberal society, there are liberals within a liberal society, but we all accept pluralism, free speech, uh, compromise, and the rest of it. Um, what previous era was the Congress quite as dysfunctional as this? So I have two thoughts on this, um, and they go in different directions. Uh, one version of it is that you go into the 18th century and Congress is much, much worse. Um, there was violence constantly in its halls. I mean, people got no, caned I'm not on the floor about violence. I'm talking about I'm talking about complete incapacity to govern. Well, I would call that um, incapacity to govern when you're being the shit out of each other in the in the halls of the chamber and you end up in a civil war. Right. So so that that is obviously a high watermark of that. But I think what people have in mind here but is a given that century. happened before around yeah, these yeah. kind of issues, when temperatures reach a certain level psychologically, aren't, this is for, for, as an immigrant, you know, that's one of the things I know about this country. It had one of the bloodiest, worst civil wars of any society on earth. Um, and it's crazy to think that that wound is completely evaporated or there isn't some, some, oh, that tension I deeply in agree that. with. So so here here's the way I would put this to try to try to make your side of the argument and then kind of complicate it a bit. I think the Congress is deeply dysfunctional. I think our ability to govern is in a deeply dysfunctional period. And the reason I think that and I'm writing a whole book about this is that the two political coalitions have sorted by ideology, by demography, by race, by gender, by religiosity, by geography. And that has structured a left right polarization in a political system that is designed to require a certain level of consensus to move anything forward, such that a period of time that in American politics has real disagreement but does not have more disagreement necessarily than past periods have, that disagreement is interpreted in Congress as pure paralysis, right? There's no way to move forward. So one, I want to say I agree with you. I think that we are, I don't think inside the context of the American experiment at a high watermark for dysfunction, but certainly at a high watermark for dysfunction in the past 150 years, let's say, um, or I think at least arguably within that. That said, when I look back on the 20th century, one of the things I see is ideologically mixed political parties creating the impression of relative political calm at a time when politics was actually coming apart at the seams and where some of what created that calm was quite um, was quite unjust. So uh, a, an example of this is that and political scientists all agree about this or overwhelmingly agree about it, is that a lot of that mixing that happened in Congress in that period had to do with conservative Dixiecrats being in the Democratic Party and liberal Northern Republicans being in the Republican Party. And so you have these two parties that are scrambled ideologically, for that reason are in part scrambled by race, in part scrambled by uh, a number of other characteristics as well. And so they're able to cooperate. And because a lot of the disagreements are playing out inside the parties as opposed to between them, they don't escalate in the way they do now because neither party wants to escalate their own disagreements. So that's an argument a, I made in my tribalism essay yes. uh, that this is precisely what is beginning, uh, is definitely occurring. But worse, it gets down to that. It, it's it's backed up by the sense that your entire human dignity is bound up in this struggle. 
But uh, let me push the other side of this because this is what okay. this is the part that, that I'd push back to you. The way we did that is that we submerged really quite profound issues of justice for very, very long periods of time. So the way the Democratic Party managed its internal um, collisions over civil rights was that it let Southern Democrats um, in the Senate filibuster and in the House use the House Rules Committee to stop anti-lynching laws, to stop civil rights laws, to enforce uh, basically what was an authoritarian and at times terroristic regime in the American South of what was one party democratic rule and was, you know, a, a kind of um, apartheid society. And there are a bunch of different things that we had a lot of violence during that period, much more political violence than we have now. I mean, you know, we had uh, presidents assassinated. I'm always amazed by this, actually. J JFK was assassinated. RFK was assassinated. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Reagan was shot. And Gerald Ford had somebody fire a gun at him from a foot away, and the gun simply didn't fire. Like, we were going through something as a society to say nothing of the civil rights movement, the, 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 the women's rights movement, the fights over Vietnam, the killing of protesters at Kent State, that if you just look at it, it was a much more profound era of political disorientation than this one. But in Congress, Congress worked reasonably well because of its, its sort of unusual structure. And so I feel like one way of thinking about this era is that we are having less of those fights submerged outside the political system. They're, they're coming into the political system. And they are, in many ways, I think, breaking the political system. I think there's real danger here. I'm not, I'm not calm about it. But I also think there's something to be said for not having a system where we think things are calm because we're keeping it calm by not a, uh, addressing some of the fundamental injustices in our society. Yes. If you think of the 50s, let's think of the 1950s as this golden sort of era. Calm is a word you might use for that period. Um, Eisenhower, amazing, unprecedented growth and building of a middle class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, obviously, massive racial injustice was, was there. The point is that what I think this is what happens is that the, many of us actually believe we've made great progress on that front. And that in fact, we've 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 done more than just progress. We've we've really worked at this, and we do have, in many ways, an incredibly successful multicultural society right now. I mean, we we're noticing the identitarian, racial, tribalization in some ways. At the same time, we are working together largely in a way that no previous society has ever really done. That I think is is also part of, and I know, I know this is sort of where you you were thinking of going. I mean, it's the changes that have been occurring are so rapid and profound, both economically, socially, and demographically, that when that's happening, and this tribalization occurs, you're entering a, a very dangerous zone, and we're seeing it. I mean, I look at it also in from the British point of view, where you have I'm staggered at how similar the situation is in Britain uh, around these things, uh, just how the metropolitan elite is so alienated from the heartland of England and vice versa, and incapable, literally incapable, of making a decision. I mean, the parliament right now has no... The parliament in London is as dysfunctional as the Congress in the US, which is saying something given the kind of powers the prime minister has in, in, in the Congress. Why do you think that is? Because I feel like that that is something that my theory sort of wouldn't predict. 
that part of the problem in America is you need this high level of consensus. You need both parties to agree. Britain is really caught and paralyzed despite being a, a system that has a pretty straight uh, mechanism for transferring electoral power into governing coalitions. Because I think what's at stake here is something deep, like I, identity. And that is something that's very hard to debate. If you think you're attacking your core identity, if, if you think someone's attacking your core identity as a human being, it's very hard to negotiate a compromise with them on that. And the truth is that a lot of English people genuinely feel that their country should have control over the immigrants that come into it. Uh, and if they want lower immigration, they can vote a new government in. If they want higher immigration, they can vote another government in, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't matter who they vote for because the EU decides, allows whatever number of immigrants want to come in at any given year. And also the, the massive change in the demography in Britain means that the, the self-understanding of the country has had to shift quite dramatically. I mean, 37% of London's population was not born in the United Kingdom. Now, that is a quite stunning number for London. I mean, it's not stunning for New York. It's about the same as New York. But London's never been New York. I mean, it's never been an immigration center. And in many ways, it's done a huge amount of good for London. I mean, if you, if you think of the high point of that, it was like the, the Olympics, uh, where everybody, Boris Johnson was touting multiculturalism, if you, if you can remember, just about five minutes ago. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I honestly feel like I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'll have this conversation with people. I'll be like, you realize this thing we're talking about it happened like three years ago. It was, it was 2015. And it just feels like like I, it feels like I'm talking about, you know, like a Marvel what if comic about Earth 2. Yeah, I think 2016 was a huge shift. I think 2015 and 16 was was the biggest shift. Um, and let's talk about race because it is underlying all this. In one year, in the, in, in the last decade, a recent year, as many people immigrated into the United Kingdom, as immigrated, in one year, as immigrated between 1066 and 1950. But this is, this is not a small shift. This is an epochal shift in which countries are becoming feeling as if they're simply cogs in an international order. And they want to know who is in control of this? And that was one of the brilliance of Brexit was its ability to use this phrase, take back control, which meant simply in this completely bewildering world in which you don't feel you have any real say at all. If you just do this, Britain can decide for itself. You can actually determine your own future. Incredibly powerful, not that powerful, only 52%, but powerful enough. And I think it's partly fear that the very nature of England will change, its culture will change. I mean, it's always changed, but it's this period is particularly bewildering for a lot of people whose meaning of life is connected to a sense of their own country's identity and history in which ethnicity is implicated. Uh, simply because it's impossible to think of England, for example, without thinking of it as basically a, a, a essentially a long-term Northern European white country. Now, the United States is a really interesting difference here because, of course, it is a unique. It was originally a multiracial society. I mean, it was a, it was a three races, you could say, were here 
uh, when the Europeans first, I mean, when the, the red, black, and white Tocqueville uh, understanding of the three original races of America, Native Americans, African Americans, European uh, colonizers. And so unlike the European countries, there's always been a basis for a multicultural society here, even though the reality of it was not exactly very promising for <laughs> multiculturalism at the very beginning. Um, right, a multicultural society, but not, a, not an equal one. No, no. But that, nonetheless, it's always been important for me to constantly remind myself that African Americans are among the original American, the ones who have been here the longest in many respects, and whose country ultimately is as much as anybody's. Whereas the European countries dealing with this kind of sudden mass influx of different cultures and races, they've, they, they, they've never had anything in their past to deal with this, which is why I'm extremely pessimistic about Europe and what, 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 is, what is coming. And I do think that the immigration issue is related to this sense that the South in general is moving north, that there are demographic trends in terms of childbearing, in terms of population growth, in terms of who's having children, et cetera, et cetera. Population growth in Africa, South America is going to vastly outweigh population growth in the Northern European or uh, white American population. Therefore, there is this existential racial panic, cultural panic going on. And you can have two responses to that panic, it seems to me. You can say, you guys are a bunch of fucking racists, and our job is to defeat you resoundingly. The other option is to say, uh, there's racism in here, but we know from human history that massive changes in racial demographics will prompt all sorts of responses, and that the pace of this and the way in which we deal with it is important. And I take the latter view, and I don't think that's being racist. Uh, it, is, it is being aware, I think, of race and its ability to affect politics in, in terrible ways uh, and not wanting to provoke that unnecessarily, uh, especially when the principle is simply we just don't want to allow certain illegal immigrants into the country. That seems for most Americans to be a no-brainer, really. So uh, so one thing that I really appreciate in your work here, because I, I believe it too, and I think we sometimes go in different directions from it, but I think it's important to foreground what America is doing, what other countries are doing too, but I'm more familiar with the American experience. What America is doing in the rate at which it is diversifying and the kind of country it aspires, or we believe it aspires to build around that diversity, is quite unprecedented. There has never been a long-term multi-ethnic liberal democracy. It has not happened, um, which is always a very scary thought to me, actually, when I when I stare at it frontally. And this is these are some of the most primal forces in, in human life. And everything we know, everything we know about political science and history and sociology of cultural change, all of it says this will be destabilizing. This will be a very destabilizing period. And to me, that is it is the macro context for everything going on right now. I mean, when I look at Donald Trump, when I look at fights over political correctness, when I look at all of this, what I see is a bunch of downstream conflicts from this like fundamental diversifying country. 
And I think that the difficulties of that need to be taken more seriously. And, and, and to one of the points you just made, I think folks who just wave it away, who say like, you know, get on board. Well, it might be nice if everybody would get on board, but there's nothing, to, there's no reason to believe people will, not in that way. And so one, I think we have to understand like we're at a, a point of what is going to feel like fracturing. Now I do, one thing that gives me hope, I should say, is while it is true that countries have not done this very often, it is not true that large political units haven't. So I'm speaking to you from Oakland, California. Yeah, cities do um, it. London, I'm, New York. Right. I'm I'm a Californian by birth. And so something like my state Empires too, by the way. Mm-hmm, empires as well. So one, I do think there are ways to navigate it. One of the places where it puts me is I think there are a couple places you could go with it. One is to say we need to slow it down. And something that I actually think is like an importantly honest thing in York, as you've said at different times, we need to slow it down because we can't absorb this much change this fast. I think another version of it, and one of the reasons that I'm very engaged in this, de- in this debate over what identity politics is and who it affects, is I think that as a precursor to understanding it, like we need to understand the identities on all sides. And we're going to have to understand white identities here, and we're going to have to understand American and competing definitions of American identity here, and we're going to have to understand nativist identities here. And I would like to believe, and I'm not sure I do, but to me, one of the great political projects of this age is I would like to believe that there's a way to build a concept of a national identity that is inclusive of the various component identities that make it up. And I think in America, I think when you people hear you say that, it sounds like you're like a little magic trick or something. But obviously, America has always had a version of this. America includes but here's Christian what I identity, would say, it includes white identity. Yes. We had someone uniquely capable of crafting that narrative. Hillary Clinton. No, Barack Obama. <laughs> yes, oh, Barack you were, Obama. Just, you were okay. just joshing me. I uh, was joshing it. <laughs> uh, Barack Obama made this argument of an unfolding of the moral arc of history through America that kept everyone who was already here and included others within the same tradition. He did so brilliantly. He did so as an emblem of that very mixing. Uh, He did it with skill and eloquence of a kind, and it ended in Trump. So now you could argue that was just a misfortune, uh, that that there was an accident there and that we will reset. Uh, But that's depressing to me. That, it's very that he was he was it was shattering that that vision which i openly supported and believe in deeply because i think that's the only option we have but, but uh, let me push you on this because i think this part is important um i agree with everything you just said in fact like the thing i say most often to people in this conversation is you have to account for how uh obama who was probably the most skilled articulator of a diverse american identity yeah. of his generation possibly you know of the coming era in american life you have to account for how he ended in trump but another way of looking at that is that it's not hard to account how he ended in trump that periods of progress on this have always been followed by periods of backlash that america is a constant Three steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one, you know, one step back, two steps forward, three steps back kind of place. It's always a struggle. And maybe and I think my counter to you on this, or at least my question for you is this. I am not certain that the desire to rediscover political calm and consensus is the right 
desire in uh, as a way to go forward. I think that some of this, I don't mean it has to be fought out in, you know, like I don't want to see violence in the streets, but I do think that I do not want to explain away the Trump era as just like one like detour as the arc of history bends towards justice, because I don't believe anything here is guaranteed. But I do think that this these convulsions, they are part of a story where you know, if liberals made a real mistake in the Obama era by sometimes having their own little end of history moment where demography was now going to like raise them up on an endlessly rising tide. I do think there are people who look at the Trump era and have the similar problem where it feels like yeah. it feels like the last chapter, but it isn't. Right. And in certain ways, I think Donald Trump, if things go, you know, in a reasonable way, I don't think he's a dying gasp of something. But I do think he is a waning gasp of something, and he has forced some of what are the fundamental collisions in American life to be had and to be fought out and to be and to be thought through. And that period of confrontation may for a society, if it, you know, if and this is an if, if it can be managed, that that period of confrontation may be more comfortable than a period of retreat or I'm sorry, may be more productive than a period of retreat. Yes. Well, that's um, uh, let's 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 hope. Uh, I would make two. I would I would make two points. I'm so rarely the optimist on the show. I'm I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> I've been deeply depressed for so long about this country, but um, uh, I would say two things. One, uh, maybe the right term is to say that what I'm concerned about is that we're going to a zero sum politics, not a non zero sum politics. In other words, that, that you can have these fights within a non-zero-sum politics that actually can lead at some point to some sort of constructive change. When you get locked into zero-sum politics and tribalism the way we have, it becomes very difficult. Um, secondly, I do think there are ways, there are ways in which uh, change can ha happen in ways that really integrate, and there's change that happens in a way that can make things more dangerous. So let me give you a simple example from my own life, like the gay question. There's no question that that has, the last 25 years, have seen a revolution in this. This is, this is one of the things that liberals are rightly very happy about. Um, but the strategy for doing that was not telling people, straight people, we don't have to explain who we are to you. You've been oppressing us for years. Uh, we demand this uh, because we've been oppressed for centuries and your heteronormativity is killing us. No, we didn't say that. We said, we're part of your family. We're part of your society. We would like to take responsibility for our relationships and have our relationships defended and respected through marriage. And we did so through a non-zero-sum politics that said, this isn't going to harm anybody. And we're all going to be part of it. And at the same time, we're sort of affirming an existing institution that is stabilizing and that other people can recognize. And that succeeded. And what I see now is a zero-sum politics in which the left, as much as the right now, is, is, is talking about groups of people who are defined as iniquitous or benevolent, depending entirely on their skin color or their... Uh, gender or uh, perceived gender. And that's that gets us nowhere but tribal warfare. So this to me, this actually is like a very useful point in the argument because I, the last thing in the world I want to do, like the worst, the, the worst trap I could walk into here is to try to argue with you about what the nature of the gay marriage movement was. But certainly my impression of it is that while it had the characteristics you're talking about, it also had um, activists who are more on the edge 
who had much more confrontational both tones and tactics. You say it didn't at all. No. The confrontational tactics were against those of us supporting marriage equality. Uh, name me one disruptive demo that really that that really was divisive. And uh, the most you can come up with was, for example, that spontaneous attempt to have weddings in San Francisco that weren't fully legal at the time. But that in itself was 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 just an affirmative statement of desire to move forward. It wasn't it wasn't a hostile uh, or or anti-straight idea. Well, so one thing I would say here, there, there are a bunch of places like that. I mean, you talk actually in one of your recent pieces about an early um, pro-gay marriage decision in Hawaii and how there was a, a feeling of celebrating it and also feeling that, the, that what had happened was very rapidly the power of the state was being used to overcome people's objections in a way that they were going to react to because they were not going to feel that that had been fair. I mean, I remember reading these debates on the National Review and other places during this sort of pre, um, you know, the, 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 the pre-Supreme Court decision era where there was a feeling that gay marriage was going to take something from them, that it was going to change definition. I mean, I remember the fights over. I mean, you, you know all this better than I do. So, again, yeah, I don't want to. I was to, in there. I, I don't want to try to. Fight your I know you were the guy. So but I guess the, the, the thing I want to push on you about here, because I think it will relate to, to the next thing, is that from your perspective inside of it, the feeling that it was not taking anything from anyone else, that it was an inclusive movement, that it was trying to expand the definition of who is included in America's core institutions. That is also how this often feels to the people inside, certainly inside the mainstream of these movements you criticize. In Black Lives Matter, um, there's a, a real feeling of like just wanting to be um, correctly policed, right? To have police take the concerns of the community seriously and not use excessive brutality or suspicion on the community, just be included in the American justice system in a more normal way. In yes. a bunch of these different places, what what things look like inside a movement asking for equality and then the way they are framed outside the movement to people who don't share its premises can be very different. And I think the, the push I'd have on you is that I think you have a much more and I think understandably incorrect. Like, I actually agree with your view of this, but you have a much more sympathetic take of the of the movement you were part of than I think you sometimes see the um, the best arguments of the movements you're critiquing. To be specific on it, rather than putting that out as a generality, like something you said a moment ago, is it the left, um, which, you know, I guess broadly I'm part of, has this view, this like kind of broad generality view of like there are groups and the groups are in this kind of like pure moral hierarchy from levels of oppression on downward. And I hear that a lot. And I know a lot of people on the left and I'm on the left and I talk to college students and I go around and I, I talk to all kinds of theorists on these issues on this show. You're a liberal, not a leftist. That may be right. But I think, well, it depends, I guess, how we're defining. Who well, that's the distinction we're fighting over. That's the distinction we're fighting. Well, I guess over. that I guess what I would say is that even when I am on the campuses, even when I am talking to the people who, let, let's put it differently than left and liberalism, because people define those in different way, the sort of social justice warrior world. I'm not saying there's nobody with the view that you ascribe here, but mostly what I hear is something that is a lot more complex when you're inside of it, and is not just they're good and there are bad. Um, then what is being described here. Mostly what I hear are people who feel that like what they're doing is not that different from what you felt you were doing. No, it's, it's obviously not. Uh, they're taking things to a much bigger and bolder level and also in the process engaging in a mass intimidation, threats, silencing, uh, and attacks on 
liberal education, and even basic science. Um, this is not uh, part of a classic liberal civil rights movement. This is an extremist left movement that comes out of extreme philosophies from the from the 1960s and 70s uh, and, and 50s for that matter, um, that really does believe that humans are entirely defined by social constructionism, that there is no such thing even as nature, that humans are a unique species in which nature does not apply, in fact, our brains can define our nature, that there are absolutely no differences between men and women, that the only criterion for a just society would be the exact proportion of the demography of the demographic shape of the country to be reflected in exactitude in its leading institutions or its, its Congress. In fact, much of it is that there should be an overreach because we've got to, we've got to, we've got to overcome 200, 300 years of oppression. So maybe we should have more of that. That is what we have. And in the process, we have a dialogue in which calling someone a white man is regarded as a useful and beneficent epithet of, of loathing. Someone who can tweet endlessly about hating white people, hating them as a whole, is now on the editorial board of the New York Times. I mean, this is, this is different. It's a totalitarian impulse. It's very dangerous, and it's captured an entire generation who are working in an Alinsky-like fashion through the institutions, especially journalism, uh, in which classical liberalism is being attacked mercilessly every day. And I think they are co-opting and feeding off the moral value of the civil rights movement in order to propose and promote a truly illiberal kind of racist politics. So this is such an, an interesting experience in this conversation because I feel like up till right now, like we've been you know, like <laughs> kind of walking the path together. And then I heard you there and I was like, boy, that like he sounds to me like like he's living in a different world a little bit. Um, so let me try to go through some of that, because one thing I would say that I'm reading, I'm reading all this. stuff. It's not like I'm in, imagining this stuff. I can read it all. This. You can go to any academic journal. You can you can look at every gender theory course. It's all. So let me there were some claims you made in there that I think are totally reasonable. Um, right. And that like would be reasonable claims among the people making them. In fact, claims are that I agree with and some that I don't. Um, and so like an example is the view that you should have in the leading institutions of political life, something close to gender and racial equity, um, you know, or at least representation, um, and maybe even a period where you're trying to overreach because you've had forever none of it or very, very little of it. That's a view I hold, basically. Um, I don't think that's a crazy thing to believe. Um, then on the other hand, there's this view that, uh, like, Again, like the left or our, our terms get a little fuzzy here, but like nobody believes in any biological difference between men and women. Matt Iglesias, who uh, I know, you know, and named an award after for many years, likes to tweet out every couple of months. I believe there are fundamental biological differences between men and women and show that like nothing terrible happens to him. Because like, I mean, like men have like people who are born male have penises, for instance. Um, and that is like not something people that's, are, that's, are disagreeing that's about. Not, you're not allowed to say that. I, well, here's the thing. I didn't spontaneously combust. Girls, them. I don't girls to be. are born with penises and boys have periods. But I, I think, well, we can get into sort of when people are describing sex and when they're describing gender. But no, the, the thing no, that I no, want to no, no, no. push on. It's both. But you're, here, here's this is, I think, sex part of the thing. Sex is included within gender identity now. Gender I, has the I, controlling, controlling force here. 
But but here I think this is the thing that you're describing something you're saying is a totalizing ideology. And here I am saying it actually isn't like I I travel through many of the same circles you do. I see the same things online. And I think that there can be a tendency to really pick up the most extreme versions of some of these ideas and suggest sort of the whole as opposed to seeing a lot of one, a lot of disagreement internally in these places and two, actually a lot more kind of openness and complexity. Often what I see is people are picking up some crazy thing that happened on a college campus somewhere or some bunch of people on Twitter or whatever it might be and trying to use it to stand in for the entirety. So let me ask you the question this way. When you describe the people you're talking about, who are we talking about? So we're not talking about Barack Obama, right? No, Barack Obama was an opponent right. of identity politics. But and are we rightly talking, so many are, of these people are we talking about Kamala Harris? Um, I don't know yet. We'll see how Kamala Harris Who's the most on the powerful person trail. in society you're describing? It's more of a movement of thought than it is a single individual politician, for example. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess Gillibrand's latest incarnation. Uh, Do you think have, she believes there's, there's no, I mean, that white people are bad? There's no biological differences between, like, do you think she would, do you think if she heard you describe what you just described, she'd say, yeah, yeah that's my view? Well, she did tweet out the future is female and intersectional. Um, uh, that doesn't seem so bad to me. Well, why isn't it also male? Yeah, so this and is what, one did, of what these does things. she mean by intersectionality? She's using a term straight out of postmodern academic discourse because that's well, we're all we're we're all influenced by postmodern academic discourse, even you. Unfortunately, even you I do have my some best. of it around you. I do my best. <laughs> I genuinely don't understand the loathing. I mean, I've read the original Kimberly Crenshaw paper on this, and I don't understand the view that the idea of intersectionality, which is that there are overlapping spheres of how people are treated in society, including in ways that they're oppressed, that seems like a pretty basic and obvious yes, idea it's, to me. It's and completely banal. It's so it's then why so are you so upset about Gillibrand using it? Well, because it's not used in that way. It's not used as simply an analytic way. It's used to say it's used to say that there must be an alliance of all the oppressed against all of the oppressors. That's its that's its use in political terminology. Do you today. think do you think that is what she means? Yes. I don't see why I shouldn't believe what she says. But I I mean, well, we're reading a lot into what the she women, said here. The women should be given priority over men in any number of, of, of spheres. So I think that if she were to, and it's hard because she's not, obviously, and so it, this may be an unfair thing I'm doing, but I've I've known her staff, I've known her work, like I've spoken, I believe I've spoken to her at something anyway, um, but I haven't had her on the podcast. Um, I think that the way she or, the way I would have understood this tweet, maybe I should put it this way, the way I would have understood that tweet reading it, so as I'm not putting words in her mouth, is that she is signaling a view that in the future, women are going to be much more represented in power structures and much more um, and their views and their needs and their political demands and the way they want to be treated is going to be given much more centrality in political discourse than it has had. And in the idea that it's also intersectional is that when she says that, she is saying and she doesn't just mean white women, which has been a thing that people have meant when they've said that before, that she also means that you're going to take into account 
more than that. And to me, it's not I very I actually am quite sympathetic to the view. Um, and and I read something that influenced me on this by a, a philosopher named Joseph Heath, who just was writing about being in a, a store with his son and seeing all these futurist female shirts and saying, no matter how much I know what that means, like my son, does, like there's no like the future is male shirts. And he he just got here. <laughs> He's young. And so I, I want to say that I'm sympathetic to the other side of this view. But I think that like for you and for me, for people trying to interpret this stuff in context, I think it's pretty clear she doesn't mean there will be no boys. I think it's pretty clear she doesn't mean we're going to have a misandrous society. I think it's pretty clear she means something that is probably not that even different from some of what you would like to see in society. I would love to see women have 50 female senators. Absolutely. Uh, I just want that to happen organically through individuals rising, coming up through the system, not through some systematic rigging of the process. But, but what if and, the process has been rigged I the whole time? I think it's happening anyway. It's happening, it's happening in, for example, in universities, which is kind of the key to future economic success. Women are completely kicking ass and are, are succeeding in ways that men are no longer succeeding. Uh, in some ways, the future's female is an empirical fact at this point. Does that mean that therefore th that therefore we should we should not give a shit about men? Um, no, uh, I, I don't think that. Let alone describe men as something like the APA just did as inherently inherently disordered. That that men are so disordered they commit ninety percent of murders because they're men, and this is their choice because of the social construction of of masculinity. Uh, that's an astonishing, if you said that, if you, if you said something like that statistic about any other sector, like say African-Americans or Latinos or anybody else, people would be shocked that you'd be blaming them for that. And that's because we have made it impossible to refer to nature in referring to the difference between, between men and women. And because nature would imply that there are actually uh, different ways of life for both for each gender, that this is the norm, that it's existed forever, that is not entirely, ent here's what I'm saying, entirely a function of patriarchy. In other words, what the left has done in the last few years is remove nature from any sort of nature-nurture conversation, just obliterated it. In fact, decided that it is itself a function of oppression. I stick to the view that both are relevant, that both biology, nature, and the way we're built as animals and as creatures is irrelevant, but also we happen to have massive brains, which also enable us to reimagine ourselves and to chart individual paths regardless of this nature. And therefore, we're always going to have some sort of push and shove between those two forces. And almost always the truth is somewhere in the middle. And my worry is the left has entirely removed any other axis than social construction and social power in defining whole groups of people in ways that will misunderstand, essentially, uh, the issues that uh, they're trying to grapple with. So there's a bunch there. Let me try to... Let me try to talk a bit about the nature thing, and then I want to go back to something about individuals and groups, because um, I think that's actually a really important part of this that I'd love to discuss. So on nature, my sense of what the view on the left is, and I just had um, Kate Mann, who's a, a feminist philosopher who just wrote the great book, I think, Down Girl, uh, The Logic of Misogyny. And we were talking about this very thing. Uh, she was just on the podcast a few weeks ago. And 
as I understand the the point about nature, and this is more or less how I view it as well, obviously nature has a lot to do with human beings and human behavior and who we are. The thing that is very difficult to do is know when you're looking at nature and when you're looking at nurture. To your point about these things being intermixed, they are intermixed in ways so complex it is incredibly hard to disentangle them. And the dangerous thing is when people begin using you know, rapid grasping of nature explanations when what they're looking at may not be nature, when what they're looking at may be society, when nature can be, when nature is shaped by, um, when when what we are doing is shaped by The reverse things. is also true. You would have to concede that- The, the reverse the, is also the, true. The not, Absol- seeing, not seeing any natural difference between, uh, uh, so for example, when a young track winner in a high school transitions from male to female, and competes in female track and within one year wins all the championships, that is not something that one can say, well, hold on, that's not fair. You say that's something not people people can't say, but obviously a lot of people do say that. Quietly, privately, not publicly. Um at all. I mean, I feel like I, I feel like I read stuff on this all the time. There's this view that there's this whole set of ideas being suppressed that seem to be all around me in society. But it doesn't matter whether the ideas are suppressed. It is actually the law. They can't not do this, according to these the, in some of the states that have these particularly strong provisions. Um, and now what I'm trying to say here is that that would not be happening if the left had not entirely abolished any understanding of nature. And that's a very that that that's so extreme. It means that almost any human difference, any human inequality, is a function of evil oppression. Uh, and if that is your view entirely, then we could have a totalitarian state tomorrow in enforcing absolute equality of outcome of human beings. But I don't believe in that. I believe in individual freedom. So I don't believe a bunch of the jumps that just got made there. And. When you are making some of these arguments and they come out sounding ridiculous to you, it is worth thinking, are you describing the views other smart people trying correctly? To. Because I because I don't I, I appreciate your work a lot. I don't know that you always are here. I think that you have a lot of nuance on some of the things and, and then not a lot on some of the others. Um, like take the take the issues around transgender folks. I don't know the specific case of this track issue, so I would not want to comment too much on it before I actually looked into it. But that said, it is just not my view that when I look around society, what I see is a society where the huge problem is that we've done way too much to treat people who are transgender equally or more than And I, w- I would agree I'm with not you saying- entirely in that. And, and so I, I'm a... I'm an extremely passionate defender of transgender equality because I, I think the transgender experience is real, unique, and tough as hell for a lot of people. And and anything that we can do to ensure that those people are not treated with any sort of inequality whatsoever is is vital. So that we agree on. But so this is this to me, this to me is is actually where a little bit of the rubber hits the road. Again, like not knowing the issue around this track situation. Um, what seems to me to be true about a lot of the things we're in is we are looking at movements that are trying to renegotiate how people have been treated poorly by society are treated. Sometimes we're renegotiating that in law. 
Sometimes we're renegotiating it in language. Sometimes we're renegotiating it in representation and company culture. And there are in any kind of big social upheaval. I mean, you're a Burkean conservative, right? Like in any kind of big uh, social upheaval, that is going to be complicated and people are going to make mistakes and some things are going to come out too little and some things are going to come out too much. So that to me is where I think I often get off the train where it doesn't seem to me that what we have is like a society rushing towards all these things. Oftentimes what's happening is that a lot is moving too slowly. You know, a couple of minutes ago, something you had said to me has been pinging around in my head, which is I described some of what's going on. And you said these are not traditional civil rights movements. Um, these are not like what we remember. But when I look back at the civil rights movement, I don't see it as this moderate, modest thing. I mean, you know, you know as well as I do what you know who the letter from Birmingham jail was actually to. But also there was black the black power movements. I mean, if you read Martin Luther King Jr.'s final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Like it is a book about how the white majority is not letting anything happen, how everybody wants to go slowly and how that desire to go slowly is creating the very frustrations, the very riots, the very unrest that they fear. And so there there is, I think, a tension, one, between seeing all these movements as clean in retrospect when they are messy at the time. And two, it um it isn't to say we should just like leap into the unknown without any thinking of it. But there's this unbelievably intense uh focus in your work and in, in the work of some others, um, you know, I think who are uh, on your side of the debates where there's so much more fear of the way these movements can overreach. And so much, it seems to me like less focus on what it is they're trying to actually address when I often look at the situation and it isn't to say one shouldn't be concerned about overreach, but one should be at least as concerned and be spending at least as much time on like, what is actually trying to be addressed? Um, Me Too is, I think, another good example here where I've read a number of pieces from you sort of looking at Me Too as a witch hunt and being very, very, very afraid that this movement is going to have some kind of totalitarian overreach when, to me, you have something that is trying to correct an injustice that has been deep in society basically forever. And, you know, what strides it has made on it are partial at best. And it's it just like the 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 rapidity which which we've become a lot more concerned about me too going too far than about the thing that is trying to fix actually existing it just feels off well that's that's where you're coming from i can see that um i think anonymously posting in public the names of people for whom you have no evidence of being rapists uh and having their careers destroyed as a result with no evidence whatsoever uh is is if you want to dismiss that illiberalism uh, and deep injustice uh, because the broader justice question is being served, uh, then you're not a liberal. No, but so what I want to do is not dismiss it. What I want to do is is what I want to do is try to like figure out why it's happening. Right. What I want to do is suggest that it is not only the injustices we see. Look, you can very easily and anybody can get into this very simple kind of, well, you're just making a means justify the ends argument. And that's exactly what Marx did. <laughs> or I'm sorry, exactly what Mao did, rather. And although Marx may have done it, too. And um, and, you know, oftentimes people um, that is implicit in thinking. But the document you're talking about, right, which I assume is the shitty media men document. Yeah. Right. That's what you're talking about. Um, yeah. There are two things happening in that document. One, I'm deeply uncomfortable with that document, just like for what it's worth. And actually, and I think a lot of people who are in the Me Too movement wrote this at the time, they were uncomfortable with that document, right? There was a lot of, and on the other hand, what that document is also trying to do was take a whisper network that was existent 
that was leading women to end up in situations where they were being sexually harassed, assaulted, had their jobs destroyed or derailed and trying to figure out some way, some way to try to like open up what was happening. And so it is not that that was a good answer. It was a, I don't actually think it was a good answer. The good at answer all. was was the journalism, the excellent journalism that has exposed some of these monsters uh, and and helped shift the culture, all of which I'm 100% for. I'm just nervous about illiberal tendencies, especially when individual people are treated terribly and unjustly and unfairly. And, and, and I think if you don't stand up for fairness, even in the middle of that, even you're not trying to stop the movement. You're trying to say, no, this is too far. This is too much. Just as I want transgender rights, but no, Caitlyn Jenner did not compete as a woman in the decathlon. And I'm not going to be forced to say that. But so this is something that I think is actually useful, which is to say that I actually would not disagree with your um, uh, description of much of this is illiberal. I think the place where I disagree is the idea that the liberalism is new or different. And w- one of the things that I think is tough, it's actually and it's actually something that I think is good in your work, uh, is generally something I really admire in your work, is that I think there's a kind of appreciation of fallenness in your work. Um, in, in a conservative way, a sense that we are always in second, third, fifth, tenth best equilibriums. Right. And that it is not that some of these things are not illiberal or even that that illiberalism should not be called out, but it should not be mistaken for the idea that what was going on before was a fair process either. I see a tremendous amount. I mean, to your point uh, a second ago, right? Yes. The idea idea that the way you're going to fix all this is double or triple or quadruple source journalism. Like I've edited some of those pieces. I like know what they take to do. And also they require the person to be reasonably prominent who is getting noted. So like, what do you do about all the people who don't have a journalistic organ on their side or a different way of putting this is this kind of sexual harassment is at least as and from most of what we know, probably much more prevalent in industries. People do not like to do that much journalism on right. trucking, the food service industry, the retail industry. Financial and so like, industry. what is their the financial industry, although people actually do like to, to expose um, bad bankers. But what like I think something that we are having to have a pretty tricky and complicated conversation in society about is what do you do about that? Because the answer can't just be that the it's just journalist. Like we're not going to do it. Like I've run one of these publications. We are not. We are not. We are not the cops. No. Um. There are laws, of course, that you can invoke. The question, and there are HR departments you go to, and and so on and so forth. And cultural change can occur, though. Cultural change change can occur more generally through journalism. Yes. I mean, that's why we. Do I what do we agree do, with that. Right. So I, 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 and I do think that in that sense, the Me Too movement is a net real positive. That's, I, I, that's what I believe. I just think that my, sometimes my role in this is to say, oh, just what? Wait, no, not quite. Please be clear. Uh, don't junk our entire liberal system because your passion against injustice you think is worth it. Uh, it never is for a liberal, but it, and it does mean, and this is, we come down to a conservative liberal debate. It's about the pace of human change. Uh, Conservatives believe in change because it happens organically and naturally, but we seek to enfold that change within the existing structures as opposed to destroy the structures as a whole. You wrote something here that uh, that I think is really useful that I'd like you to unpack because I think it'll help us um, uh, sort of have this part of the discussion. 
Uh, you write, the left will tolerate nothing that gets in the way of what it calls social justice, which far too often reduces individuals to racial or class or gender identities rather than merits or character or talents. The conservative approach to a multicultural and multiracial society is to keep our focus on the individual and do its best to help every individual, regardless of race, gender or whatever, to be part of our shared liberal democratic inheritance. Yes. And so what what I'd like to... That's uh, <laughs> It's, a, it's not bad. No, I mean, it's, a, it's, a it's, a, it's a beautiful quote. And let me, but let me tell you from sort of, I guess, my liberal perspective, where I find tension in it, which is this. What do you do when it is not that the folks who are um, having these social justice conversations want to be seen as groups? It is that they are seen as groups. One of the suspicions people on the left have of, of this kind of argument is that it is often used as a kind of tactical move in a world where people are not truly treated as individuals to not deal with the experiences groups are really having. Um, you had said a couple minutes ago when we were talking about Congress and representation in it, you want to see this happen organically, not sort of like be imposed from above. But oftentimes the rules of the game are set up for very long periods of time to make that organic um, change very difficult to occur. And also... People are working off of the cultural, um, societal, economic, et cetera, inheritances of long periods of power imbalance. So the idea that you can just like fire this starting gun at some point in history and say we're equal now, everybody start competing when we're not actually equal. There's nothing really approaching equality in that way feels to feels to a lot of people, including to me, I'll, I'll put myself in the argument here, like it's a bit of a dodge to the actual experience and problems folks are facing on the ground. Uh, that's a fair point. I, I I do think the word equality there needs qualification a little bit because we're not we're talking about equality of outcomes. I think here rather than equality of opportunity. I do think strictly speaking, how different do you think those are? Considerable. Uh, so I always think people use those two, assuming that w with the implicit idea being that equality of opportunity is like this low bar. Equality of opportunity seems to me to be extraordinarily difficult to reach. Like I've never even conceptualized calling for a society that is true equality of opportunity. Like that feels to me like you would actually need a totalitarian society to achieve it. But people use it all the time as if it just means like you're treated equally, relatively equally under the law, even though like maybe you started with three million dollars and you started with nothing. And like you don't get called back the same amount because of your like there's something weird to me in the way that that gets used as like describing society that people seem to think we might be near, even though I mean, equality of opportunity, that would be tough. I don't think a society has. You know, I think there is equality, a lot of equality. It's never fully there. But I think e equally the dismissal of the possibility of equality of opportunity or that being the key principle is a, is a, is a disincentive for individuals to prove themselves as individuals. I think that's fair. And that in itself might be an impediment to the advancement of their group. And this is the, this is the argument. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable argument to have. And I think what upsets me in a way is that that argument, which is a legitimate argument, has been turned by the left into you're a white supremacist because you believe that. Uh, the, the rhetoric has been- That you believe what? If you believe in equality of opportunity on the grounds that I said, I think that's the best way to move society forward multiculturally is to, is to in allow people to prove themselves as individuals regardless of their gender and identity. Oh, now, that may take longer than forcing it or rigging it uh, from the get-go, but I think it's, it's likely to inflame fewer racial tensions, fewer tribalisms, and save the individual from being defined uh, 
by his membership of a group. I never wanted to be defined as a gay writer, for example. And and I mean, it's not like I don't have my own minority experiences. Uh, I I grew up a Catholic in England. You know, I, I I'm a I'm a gay person. Uh, I'm a I'm a, you know, cat, all the rest of it. I, I, it's, it. We all have different minority experiences in some sort of way. My experience in my life, and I know uh, maybe I was, uh, again, I'm, I'm privileged because I'm white, but when you grew up in a basically all white country, that didn't make a huge amount of sense. So that's why it's hard for me to grapple with. But um, my experience in my lifetime has been that people are actually very open to constructive, moderate change to include minorities within the culture at large. I think the vast majority of people would be very happy to have employment discrimination protections for transgender people if that was what the law actually said, as opposed to altering the entire concept of gender and sex, which is what they're now being asked to do. And, and I do think that there is natural inequality. I think people are better at some things than others, and you're better at some things than I am. The, the society in general has inequality. Inequality is structural. It's natural. And I don't think you, I don't, I don't believe in a society in which it's entirely gotten rid of. So I think that, well, I don't either. I mean, that's actually sort of what I'm saying, that I think that people often talk as if there's a society where it's been gotten rid of. And not only do we not have that, but we're not going to have it. And nobody's really considering what it would mean to have it, or very few people are. Um, and, and that is true even for equality of opportunity. And the the reason I, I bring in that complication is, you know, you were, you were saying a couple minutes ago that you don't want to be defined as a member of a group. You don't want to be defined by your group identity. And you know what? Nor do I. Like, I'm Jewish. I don't want, you know, the only thing people see when they look at me to be Jewish or have, whatever, right? I, I want to be seen as, as Ezra Klein, a somewhat annoying political blogger. <laughs> and like, that is my, <laughs> you know, that that is my my role in the world. But um, But what I do think is true is first, a lot of people don't get the choice. Um, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of, uh, you know, people who are in these identity politics arguments about this. And one of the points they make to me often is that I would love to not have an identity. I just don't get that choice. I walk around and I have black skin or whatever, or I'm disabled or whatever it might be. And society makes assumptions about me and makes decisions about me. And so when then, then, then they turn around and say, oh, act like an individual. And I would like to like what I would like, what I'm trying to do is make the group experience salient such that I can have the room and the freedom to 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 have that individual experience that other people take for granted. Um, so that's what that's. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is this is why I bring up the equality of opportunity. I, I think, for instance, the racial wealth gap is a good is a good question to bring in here, because there's this idea of, well, why don't we just have have equal competition? And, you know, I think one one question that that begs, um, particularly when we're, we're talking about state action and what states should be doing for groups, is that we have had in this country, like since inception, because of because of decisions we made as a country, a endlessly compounding racial wealth gap where um, I mean, I'm not going to go through the, the whole litany of it. You, you know it perfectly well. No, I, I know exactly yeah, what you're saying. But at some point when, um, you know, white kids are, are born into families that have on average, whatever it is, $170,000 in assets, um, not to say all of them do, but on average, and and black kids are born into families that have something like a, a, a fifth, uh, I'm sorry, 5% to 10% of that, there is a difference there that profoundly affects outcomes. And when people said, when people then say, no, everybody's an individual and it's up to you. But it wasn't, you know, one person couldn't go back to school because their family, you know, didn't have the money to deal with an illness and the other person got seven chances. And 
like that is a way in which society is structurally unfair. And you you can't see it unless you're at least willing to take into into account some of these um, some of these group dynamics. Yeah, uh, except it seems to me that that one of the errors is conflating the African-American experience with anybody else's experience, that African-Americans have been subjected uniquely to an experience of of unbelievable oppression in a way that no other minority has. And I think, I honestly think that's a very important moral distinction. So I, as a true blue classical liberal, I would probably oppose almost anything that was collectivist on this matter, except for the matter of the inheritance of slavery and of African-Americans. What worries me, because I think that is such an incredible historical injustice, and it still impinges so deeply on people's psyches and on their opportunities, that I'd be prepared to go quite left on that issue. As, and I've long been a uh, criminal justice reform person and, and so on and so forth. But do you believe in reparations? I, you know, I'm open to that argument. I just don't think it's practically possible. Um, I can see that there's some abstract justice in that. Uh, I just don't think practically that it could. It would probably do more harm than good. Uh, I don't know how you do it. Uh, and I think, uh, anyway, it's a long conversation. I don't get into that. But I'm not hostile to it. But I am the notion that every other possible grouping would have the same treatment as this ad infinitum is a different kind of principle for people who haven't been enslaved, who've just been immigrants and had a certain amount of social prejudice directed against them. Um, at some level, I think everybody's preemptively judged walking down the street. Good-looking people are always do have an advantage over ugly people, tall people over short people. I mean, we live our lives, and if I went around thinking, oh my God, everybody looks at me and thinks that fag, I would go insane that there is a psychological resilience you have to develop as a member of minority to just say, I don't really give a fuck what they think. And I'm going to live my life regardless of their attitudes. And if they push back against me, I'll push back against them, but in pursuit of my own ambitions. That is, to my mind, the only constructive way forward. It may be psychologically difficult. Uh, it may not. It may be true that you're actually a victim in certain circumstances. It does not help to believe you are such. So this actually seems to me to be a, a pretty, uh, a, in some ways, to be both like a, a true and profound and difficult point. It often seems to me to be true that societies need are, are best served by keeping two ideas that are in tension in their heads at the same time. Which is one, for individuals, it is probably good to believe in themselves as individuals who can just make their own way in society. And then two, for societies need to rep need to understand and, and appreciate differences and inequities between groups and structural injustices that need to and can be fixed um, by state power, by cultural power, whatever, whatever it might be. And that a problem often comes in the in the collision and the tension between the two, which are not you don't have to choose one. It is just very, very hard for people to keep both together at the same time. Um, but, you know, I was just having this conversation with Robert Sapolsky, the, the the neuroscientist. And in this case, we were talking about poverty, actually. But 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 it's true here, too, which is the fact that it is good for individuals to think one way and potentially also good for society to to think of itself as society does in more in more macro terms. Those don't seem to be intention to me. It just seems to be difficult. Um. I think that's a little optimistic. <laughs> well, uh, I, 
I, I think I think a lot of I think a lot of things are optimistic. I don't I don't know that we can do that. I just think it's true. But you also don't want to deny individuals agency. You also don't want to deny whole groups agency. Um, I just don't see a, a view that we're not that we're doing that, though. Like, where are we denying individuals their agency? Like, I, I mean, it's a society here. I don't mean like something that like somebody said on campus, like like what is being asked for here that would wipe out individual agency? I mean, what? It doesn't matter how well you do on a score to get into college. If you're one race, you get in. If you're one race, you're not. So one, nobody has just pure like, you know, you get in no matter what your score was, right? Like that's not a level of affirmative action anybody's got. So, but I'm I'm just. But you know that people are being discriminated against on the basis of their race in most of the elite colleges that, that govern the elite in this country. So racial discrimination is enforced from the very top of our institutions. But that's where I think the language begins to break down a bit, right? Because what we were just saying, like that tension, holding that tension together feels to me like you would frame that a different way, which is to say, on the one hand, it's good for individuals to feel that they will be judged on the merits, which on some level they certainly will. You can't get into Harvard with a 200. I don't know if you can get a 200 SAT. I'm not, we're talking about people who are remarkably lower scores than others, or remarkably higher scores than others who were discriminated against entirely because of their race. But do you think it is not a good thing for colleges to look out in society and say there are tremendous inequities here, such that somebody, I guess the SAT is 2,400 now, such that somebody in one context getting a 2,100 is just as impressive as somebody in another getting a 2,300. Like, is that a crazy thing for for a college to do? I do think that telling a hard-working, great Asian-American kid that, yeah, if this were entirely based upon scores and talent, you'd be in. But your race, I'm afraid, means that we have to make space for someone else. I don't. That that's zero sum. One person gets in, one person doesn't. But but these colleges, they are zero. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of complexities with the Asian American Harvard case. So I don't want to um, like we can talk about that. But I mean, that idea, the thing you just said there at the end, we're like, well, that's zero sum. Yeah, like there's a certain number of spots. It is zero sum. Like, I wish that it weren't. I wish that Harvard, with its quadrillion endowment, would open up 10 more Harvards. I think I actually think it'd be good for a lot of these things to open up quite a bit. But the idea that there's any version of this that is not zero sum is just, I mean, when you're talking about a limited number of applications, like, it, or I'm sorry, applicant slots, that's why, it, is that's why it seems to me important to have a neutral, a very neutral um, qualification for entering and in, in which someone's... Uh, characteristic racially or gender wise. I mean, for example, class affirmative action, I think would make a lot more sense um, because it wouldn't be dividing us racially, which of course I think has had a huge impact on uh, on the way colleges interact around race. And also the no one really takes into account the idea that the person who got in with the lower scores and who continues to have lower scores than other people, how they feel. And what does it say about the the university that it's prepared to condescend to such a person? I think it's always do you, I, I always think it's weird the idea that it would be condescending to take some of this into account or even that people feel it would be in general. I mean, I guess to to what you just said, that that idea of neutrality is I, I think what I am what I am pushing on here. When you say that neutrality is simply what you got on the SATs. That's one definition of it. Certainly, that's a neutral process. And when you say that it can, it means a lot more, I actually think it's a more, um, I think neutrality is being used in the wrong way there, right? You're saying you're, you, 
you are saying neutrality there in a way that is completely neutral to what people to like people's lives. And in general, colleges don't approach that in any way like that. Right. They have college application essays. They take into account your extracurriculars. I mean, one thing that I yeah. think is odd a little bit in your no, thinking no, on mean, this is just thing, a couple of things is, are all not as but, long as race isn't involved. But just a couple of minutes ago, you, you something you said to me, which I thought was was important and moving was that. You know, there is a distinct African-American experience in this country, and, and you believe in quite a bit to to change that. And then it's like, well, if you include race, that's a bad idea. But class might be fine. Like, why wouldn't race be OK then? Right. Like, well, like, I there guess is a distinct. It, I guess I could make an exception for African-Americans, but for no one else in that case. But still, I think it's still there's something about an upper middle class African-American kid uh, being given priority over first generation Asian American kid that still strikes me as, as as unjust. Well, I think that's probably I mean, I don't want to exactly know if it's right without knowing the situation, but I think one one reality I'm is just one reason I that. think this yeah, one reason I think the zero sum this is important to be upfront about is that when you've got however many kids applying to Harvard and you've got six thousand slots or whatever they have, it is gonna be unjust on some margin. There isn't there isn't a purely just way to do it. Like this is a this is something that I find frustrating in the debate. Like this is a space that is going to be complex because society is complex and we're never going to have a really good answer. Right. Where there is no version of neutrality or a process by which like by which you get an answer that is inarguably just. Um, certainly not one that I would find inarguably just. Yeah. And I so find we're that we're arguing about this. I've lost yeah. this argument. This is I'm, I'm, my <laughs> argument is irrelevant. It's gone. It's I'm, it's 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 merely a critique at this point. It's not going to. I'm done. That question is resolved. Uh, uh, well, I mean, it will get some, more and more complicated it, in but both it ways, resolved. right? I, I feel like a lot of the affirmative action people feel this way, too, that like after the Supreme Court made its decision that they've lost, too. And now we're just in this weird way where you can only talk about race as, as a as a contributor to diversity, but not. A, it's a very strange space we're in, in some cases, because I think we don't want to have these hard conversations. We would prefer to well, because it's the them. same tension that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're in that tension. We, we do have countervailing uh, goals here. We want the justice of any individual reaching their full potential, regardless of their race. We also don't want us to see a society that seems to be rigged in favor of certain races against others. So uh, there is tension here. I, I, and I think the truth is that in all the questions we've been talking about, you're just more on the macro, we need to move forward argument. And I'm yeah. more on the uh, micro individual justice, maybe a little slowness in this might be better. Uh, and my concern right now is the way that Trump and the left have sort of interacted, and, 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 and it's a dynamic. And, and again, I completely understand why he would drive people to this, because he's almost a parody of what left-wingers said conservatism was about forever. I mean, it's, it's hugely embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I mean, if anybody's ever, you know, ever had in the word conservative attached to them, even though I've been obviously very heterodox for a long time, it's still, I and mean, what an indictment of an entire political party and tradition to end up with this unbelievable buffoonish monster. So yeah, um, where was I going with that? No, but I agree. I, I think that <laughs> dynamic has made things worse, and I'm just yeah. scared of this getting out of more out of control. That we don't have a president whose traditional role would be to calm these things, to be the unifier. I mean, that's the job 
of the president. Let me just sit down with Skip Gates and the cop, you know, that, that zone, which Obama tried to uh, occupy and which most responsible presidents do occupy. They don't want to stir up racial animosity to such a fever pitch in this way, but Trump, no. Trump has no sense of that responsibility. So we're, we're, we're flying blind and tribalism is 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 resurgent in an extraordinary way, and hence my my caution and my worry and 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 my paying attention to this stuff and my hope because I'm going to vote Democrats next time and and whatever it takes to destroy this current Republican Party. I, I would also like it them not to either fuck it up <laughs> or which I think they still can uh, or. To do things that I think are just wrong and unjust, and will and, and will 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 rebound badly on them, and especially at a moment where I really think the left's great advantage right now is the fact, the simple fact, that global capitalism is failing dramatically across the Western world to improve the lives and prospects of middle class and working class people. That's all you need to run on. And that has to be fixed. That has to be fixed. And maybe the state has to be involved in that. Um, and I think it probably does. Um, I can't believe how open I was to a 70% upper rate, upper tax rate, uh, when it came along. I think the Green New Deal, for example, the, I mean, there are a couple of things about it, but one of the things I like about it is the first thing on the table, which actually takes into account the scale of the challenge here. You know, it actually talks about net zero emissions within a certain amount of time, as if this were an emergency. And of course, I think it is an emergency. And although I could disagree with them on a bunch of stuff, I think, I mean, for example, I think you should obviously have nuclear power as part of the solution. And some of this is unnecessarily alienating to all sorts of other people, but great. Uh, so in other words, you know. But let me try to make you feel better then. I yeah. think I have an optimistic take for you um, that, mm-hmm. that, that maybe will that, that maybe will be calming. <laughs> So I'm not arguing that there's not a kind of campus and on some levels even Twitter left that like you look at it and everything is a war of all Ugh. groups against all groups, right? I, I hear yes, you. Yes. And I may be more sympathetic to some of its arguments, but I, I take the idea that it is not a good way to structure American politics. I think that is true. But when I look at the le- like what I like the Democratic Party, right, running from its more modern left incarnations like Al- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders to the sort of like liberals like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, you know, all the way to its more um, moderate wing, although that wing is uh, quite a bit further to the left than it was a couple of years ago. What I see is a lot of people taking this energy and coming out with exactly the kinds of things that I think you would hope to see them coming out with. I mean, what is Kamala Harris's big central idea. It's the LIFT Act, which is a huge expansion of the earned income tax credit, which is like rewarding work for all kinds of different people. What is Cory Booker's big idea? And and, and he frames it as a way to approach the racial wealth gap. But it is a cla- it is a race neutral idea for baby bonds, right, for for children to get um, assets that grow and they can use on education and other investments when they turn um, 18. What is Sherrod Brown doing, running on the dignity of work? What is Bernie Sanders talking about? He's talking about Medicare for all. What is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doing, right? It's not like a constant racial justice platform. It is the Green New Deal, which has racial justice elements. But as you say, is about this broader, not just kind of cross race and cross class, but, but global emergency. And what I see is a a feeling that the left has become all identity, but I actually look at the Democratic Party and also the left, and I see a desire to take different group experiences seriously, but but ladder them up into these 
um, ideas that you could certainly, I think, criticize as too ambitious or too big or too much too fast, right? Like, you, you know, there are all kinds of criticisms one can make, but it's not laddering up into the thing that I think you fear. And sometimes I think people don't give that enough credit that it, it, the Democratic Party doesn't look like Twitter. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I hope you're correct. I just also am aware of how elites can change discourse and how so many of these ideologues are now framing the journalistic uh, narrative as well. Um, but look, if that happens, great. I, I'll know one thing. I mean, this I was very much persuaded when I went to Britain last year and tried to look at the Labour Party and what had happened to it, which is quite a much more dramatic in a way than what's happened to the Democrats. And what shocked me was how such an, a really rather hard-reaching, uh, massive government intervention in the economy that would be explicitly funded by borrowing and printing money. Uh, once it was laid out for people at the beginning of the campaign, they gained 20 points in six weeks, especially among those under 40 who know firsthand that capitalism is failing them. Yet, you have this shambolic conservative government and Labour is now seven points behind. The, the trick is embracing the passion and correct analysis of the left without carrying with it the seeds of extremism that delegitimizes it and turns away a lot of people in the middle. And that is something that Labour Party has actually failed to do. And Maybe the Democratic Party can do better than that. But once you give these forces the upper hand, it's very hard to fight them back because their zeal is so much more intense than the pragmatism of those who might oppose them. And so that's just a danger. I mean, look at, I think British and American policies do have some stories for each other. They've, they've mimicked each other quite a lot, um, including Brexit and Trump. Um, but Labour is not, doing what it should do right now. Yeah, I mean, in some um, ways, I think that the, uh, and this is a sort of unpopular opinion I hold, but in some ways, I think that Donald Trump, for all his horrors, is a better foil for the left and for the left's agenda than they might have otherwise gotten. I mean, one thing about the, the, the Conservative Party in Britain is they've been able to keep a relative level of, I actually shouldn't say that at this point, for a while, they had kept a relative level of control over how they were working internally. But- Something that I I very much fear, I very much fear in the coming years, the coalition that could be put together by smart Trump, by disciplined yeah. Trump, right? This is yeah. when, when you ask me, like, what makes me afraid? It isn't Donald Trump is awful and he has hurt real people's lives, right? Like, this is not a joke. It is not a symbol. It is not a um, it is not a debating point. But he is also deeply weak as a president and weak as a political figure. He runs behind where Republicans should be right now, given the economy. He does not reach out to people who I think would be persuadable to his ideas, but do not like his personal behavior. Like he just he's weaker than somebody in that position could be. And if a really savvy politician could become this is a little bit unfair to Goldwater and particularly unfair given the Goldwater loss, but like the Reagan to Trump's Goldwater. Right. If a, if a savvy politician could pick up what Donald Trump showed is true in the American electorate and then um, yoke it to a more compelling personal demeanor and a more disciplined political approach, I think it'd be very dangerous. Um, and I, I do, too. I think. But I, I do think, nonetheless, 
that Donald Trump's demagoguery, like his crazy demagoguery, is actually critical to his success. In other words, that it's it's hard to replicate Donald Trump without that demagoguery. I think that's right. But I think it's because of the uh, primaries. Yeah. I mean, you can code the demagogu- demagoguery better. <laughs> I mean, you can uh, – he doesn't code it at all. Um, but I also would say this, that, that if in a fight between left populism and right populism – in this country, you have two forces. One is the, the the obvious economic stress the middle class is having, which favors left populism. But then you also have this massive demographic shift that favors right populism and a sort of clinging to a, a particular national identity. Um, and I, in America, right populism tends to always beat left populism. At least that's that's I think been the experience. Um, and I do believe, and I don't want to get into a whole other subject here, but I do believe that the Democrats are misjudging the immigration issue. I'd like to get it. That- I think this is an important subject. Do you have the time to just do this last beat? <laughs> yes, if you want. It's, uh, I, it's, I think you're right. Uh, I, th- I think it's an important thing to talk about. I, I just don't think the Democrats need to be put in position of constantly defending illegal immigration, or at least appearing to. Uh, and that's a brilliant position that Trump has put them in. And I don't understand who gives a damn about a wall. I mean, I, it, I just think it's become this ridiculous symbol. Uh, I think if you passed National E-Verify, you'd have a much more effective disincentive for people to come here. But the new problem of asylum seekers with children is a really important problem. I mean, your reporter, Dara Lind, has been great on this. Um, there is a crisis, and it's a crisis of bad incentives for people to show up with kids, be processed, released into the country, and and essentially have uh, de facto asylum that way. And also because Obama changed the asylum rules to include things like domestic violence and criminal act- and gang activity, which, honestly, if domestic violence is a criterion for entry to the United States, half the population of Africa could show up tomorrow. Um, and half the population of South America could. I mean, it's something's going to some. This issue is not going away. I think it fueled Brexit. I think I think that symbols. If you I, I, no problem in putting a symbol in that way, uh, but if people in the middle of the country don't think we have control of our borders, they will they will want to take it back. And, and in that sense, I think Trump is onto something. So I, I think this is a this is a, a kind of key issue. You know, a while back you wrote about a an interview I did with Bernie Sanders, um, where I'd asked him about open borders. And um you wrote about he said this was a open borders was a Koch brothers plot. And I reacted with surprise to that. And you were like, haha, you can see Ezra, who's like the open borders fanatic, <laughs> um, you know, can't believe. And I, I was annoyed by that because I'm actually not an open border supporter. What I was trying to do actually is I think something is getting at your at your question here, which is I think that an unsettled question in the Democratic Party is given its beliefs about immigration and diversity, what is the, what is its limiting principle on immigration? Um, to me, that is a hard question. It's not one that I have a ready answer for in the way that I have a ready answer for, like, what are my limiting principles or underlying values and how do they interact for healthcare or for sort of tax policy or, or a bunch of other things. If you listen to some of the, the Democratic Party's rhetoric on immigration, nobody is illegal, that kind of thing. Like, OK, um, I actually believe in, in a lot of that morally, but 
what then do you do? Like, I don't believe society can. I'm probably more open to change than you are. I think we've seen that in this conversation. But I think that open borders actually would destabilize our political system in a way that we couldn't manage. And so something that I don't think the Democratic Party has an answer for right now, maybe they'll be able to hide it a bit by just being against Donald Trump's increasingly unpopular immigration agenda and increasingly unpopular immigration symbolism. But, you know, with the with the exception of sort of the hard to explain gang of eight style compromises, like what is the Democratic Party's approach on immigration? And that is the one issue where I think Trump has a clarity that they don't. Yeah. The limiting principle, I, I'll suggest a couple of things that might might inform that. One is simply don't allow mass immigration at such a rate that we are spawning white nationalism on an ugly and nationwide scale, that that may be a sign that we're moving too quickly. Um, secondly, it's it, immigrants do better when they don't arrive in huge groups because when they arrive in huge groups of their own, they, the, the interaction with the broader society tends to be less uh, common and therefore the integration of society takes longer and can even result in a separation of the immigrant population from the general population. And second, thirdly, when unskilled labor is, is really in the toilet in terms of remuneration within the global economy. Uh, and that is creating a, a huge inequality problem in the United States. Bringing in many more millions of unskilled workers is probably a bad idea. Uh, and the other thing the Democrats need to do, I think, is simply say, we understand there should be limits on immigration. Um, and and we understand that because we understand the pressure on domestic workers. We think the global economy at this point is punishing unskilled people, and we don't, we don't have the we we don't need those people. We can we should move to more skilled immigrants. Uh, I, I will think that's all reasonable. I mean, I think Raihan Salam's book uh, was a, a very smart attempt to find a way forward on this, um, understanding immigrant patterns. But what I'm grateful for, Ezra, in this particular exchange with you is your openness to understanding this question as opposed to shutting down the conversation immediately and saying you're a white supremacist, which is, which is what happens normally. There's one of the things about liberals that they think that, no, let me not generalize. Let me say some leftists, let me put it that way, okay, is that they think that every white person is, you know, inches away from turning into a KKK member if they see someone of another race. And yet they also favor massive demographic change to have all sorts of different races come in and think there will be no reaction. You, it doesn't make any sense. The more you think white America is racist, the more concerned you should be about the consequences of mass non-white immigration. Well, I think that, I think that tension is a real, is a real one. And and I mean, you're talking a couple of minutes ago about the ways in which Donald Trump affirmed what a lot of people suspected about the Republican Party and what its kind of true motivating principles were. And to, to your point about that, I think that that should really bear on how you think about immigration. I think the question is, though, twofold. One is that because I actually do care a lot about immigration, I'm the son of an immigrant. Obviously, you're you're an immigrant. Um, because I care a lot about immigration as a as a justice issue, and because I come from a society in in California that absorbed a lot of immigration and and is a well functioning political um, culture, 
I believe in our ability to bring in more people um, than other folks do. The question is, can the culture move to believing that as well? And if you can't, if you can't, well, the reason I think it's actually important to have an argument about this and to have principles and to have something you actually can say and discuss is that if you can't move people to that place, if it isn't, if it is something that is being done to them rather than that they are part of doing you are not going to get there, right? Like, I don't think it is fixed. I don't think there is a number that we can, like, derive at which point the number of immigrants coming is a wrong number. Different cultures and different countries will react to them at different times in different ways. Like everything else, it's incredibly uh, frustratingly complicated. But I do think that it has to be a discussion that is had in, in more terms. And something that often frustrates me about the Democratic Party is I think that they're more comfortable, oddly enough, that I think they're more comfortable talking about border security and to some degree more comfortable talking about what to do with immigrants who are here than talking about immigration itself and what are the principles on which it should run and um, and how should we think about that? How should we think about it and how can it make America better off? You know, I often, there are places in the country that are very full of people and housing costs are high and, you know, jobs are scarce and, and, and so on. There are also places in the country that could do with a lot more people. I mean, Detroit would be a lot better off if it had more people in there to be part of the tax base and to be able to pay for street cleanup and, and all the rest of it. Detroit is a depopulated place. And I often think about, you know, having an immigration policy for Detroit, where if you can buy a house, you can come. Like that would actually be good for that place. Like they are they are fighting a battle right now that they can't win with the, the the tax base they have. But I don't think we have a sophisticated conversation of ways in which immigration could help and also ways in which, you know, it could hurt or be too much. And so, like, I, I don't have the answer on this, but it is, is one reason why I try to ask politicians hard questions about it, because I think these are values that need to be articulated, not just, I think, what was happening before, which is that they foster within a kind of quiet elite consensus and the debate on them is largely suppressed. I think that's been a huge problem with immigration um, because people feel it's, it all happened without their buy-in at all. Um, and the truth is also because illegal immigration has been such a big Im impact on this, uh, the, you add something else, in, which is that, I mean, we can have all sorts of debates about how many immigrants who want to come into the country and what kind and where they would go, and blah, blah, blah. but that assumes we have control over who immigrates and who doesn't. Until we have absolute control over that, we never have absolute, but until we have solid border control over that, we can't really have this, this, this discussion. And the Democrats don't. I mean, they have in this current, I don't know what the latest of this is since I've been talking to you, it changes every few minutes, but the latest is that they want to restrict the amount of uh, detention beds for asylees so that the vast majority of them have to be released into the country. Now, that's not a good, that's not a good thing. There's a huge incentive for more people to come uh, and it sends the wrong message. I also think to call the wall or a border an immorality, which was what Nancy Pelosi did. If it's, but then why isn't she tearing down the walls? They're all, it's already there. Uh, I mean, of course it's not an immorality to have a wall between, to have a border between your country and another. I think that part of the problem with Donald Trump, um, and it's a problem in politics generally, is that a lot of what policy means isn't just what it does, but but what it is intended to, to, to be and to say and to mean. And as you say, there are a lot of places um, you know, it's true in parts of San Diego, right? It, it's true all over where we have border wall and where we have other kinds of border protection. And Democrats, in many cases, were part of appropriating yeah. the money to do that and supported it. And, and they're not yeah. running a kind of counter campaign to tear it down. And then it's like you can all, find all sorts of quotes from and, them in the past yep. defending these walls. And then I also think it's true that Donald Trump coming in and making 
making the wall a symbol of a view about immigrants, which he has and he pursues in politics, gives it a different valence and a different meaning. And the idea that you can then switch back and forth between, this is a, a view I have about Donald Trump, and I say it a lot, that Donald Trump doesn't want the wall. He wants a symbol of the wall. If Donald Trump wanted the wall, he would have negotiated to get it at some point in the last two and a half years. He doesn't want the wall. He wants like to fight about the wall because fighting about the wall says something about him and his view and his political coalition. And it creates a fight, whether or not he actually will win it. I don't think he's actually doing that well enough right now, but it creates a fight that he feels that he wants. And Something you've talked about a, a number of times in here is this idea of zero-sum politics. And I, I think you're right about it. Oftentimes, I think there may not be an alternative, but I think you're right about its poison. But policy is often positive-sum. There are a lot of ways you can negotiate to get from a status quo you have to something multiple people like better. And symbolism is often zero-sum. And something Donald Trump creates is a politics of symbolism where everything is zero-sum. It's not a policy for all his talk about deal-making of negotiation where a lot of things could be positive-sum. Yes, I think that's true. And I do think that the way in which Trump has framed this, which is despicable, I mean, just despicable, the notion that immigrants commit crimes. Right. And that is why we should keep them out is, is about the lowest card in the deck you could possibly pull. And it's his first impulse. He's such a bigot and racist that it may be that he permanently discredits this entire movement for immigration control. I don't know. I doubt it. But he's certainly, I think, done so far more damage to the cause of immigration control than, than success. Um, he's emphasized the worst parts of it, the, the hideous ice raids, the, the obviously, uh, this absurd military performance on the border, uh, closing down the government. All of this stuff is, is crazy if from a rational immigration restrictionist point of view. Um, again, why not e-verify? I mean, I think that's a winning issue for him, right? Let's just pass it so that if even they get in, they can't get a job. That would work. But so he doesn't think about that because he doesn't, he can't create this dynamic, as you're saying, of all these evil darkies coming in to murder us. Um, uh, all of that's in quotes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing yes, him because other people will use that quote. And, uh, but so, yeah, I mean, I, I, th I know some immigration restrictionists and they, they're, they're not happy with the way Trump has handled this. Yeah, um, I, I, that, that is certainly right. Um, well, look, there's a million other things I want to talk to you about. Yeah. I have so many notes, but I've, I really appreciate you giving me all this time. Um, let me end I'm, with you here. Sorry. I, I just, I wanted to ask you about your retreat, but since, since we talked about mine the last time we were on. Sure, here, I, I can, I can tell you a bit about uh, it. Although it has this quality where, you know, I'm now probably about a month out from it. And the further I get from it, the more it's like describing a dream. It like gets harder yeah. to describe in any vivid way. Yeah. But um, so yeah. I went on this five day meditation retreat and um, at Spirit Rock, and I, I found it to be honestly a very beautiful experience. Um, it was challenging in spaces for sure, uh, but the feeling of my mind getting brighter as the amount of input into it slowed down was really quite remarkable. Um, the kind of panic I felt early on when I couldn't distract myself with a book or with TV or with something else at night was really the degree to which I, I think I use input as a kind of pacifier was an interesting thing to have to observe. And then, you know, the other thing, just at a high level, uh, the melancholy I felt coming back and since feeling the amount of input and information that I surround myself with and feeling it kind of act like a like weights on my own attention and on my own consciousness, a feeling of 
like that, the clarity of that awareness being actually in tension with the way I've designed my own life has been a feeling I've been struggling with a little bit in its aftermath. I think that's beautifully put. It certainly echoes my feeling. I mean, and I, it, it, it comes with what we do for a living in a way. Um, now, I've removed myself from the insanity, I mean, the total insanity of 24-7 blogging. Um, and you, you've, you've tiled things down a lot, too, as far as I can see. Well, a lot of my time but, goes into sort of, you know, the kind of like Vox strategic stuff. Um, but right. I try to stay but more, I don't say fully off Twitter, but I try not to be involved in Twitter, which I think is helpful. Yes. Everybody says it's helpful and no one ever quits. Um, well, I, I actually want to write something about this. Like, I kind of feel that so much politics is on Twitter. We have to stop as journalists writing these dumb pieces about how we're going to quit and not. And I think have to come up with some cultural principles or even like as a profession principles for how we're going to use an important political platform. I'm a little tired of hearing my colleagues and myself be like, well, Twitter's terrible. I'm just going to leave and then come right back. Um you know, if we're going to be there, we may as well think as a profession about what versions of ourselves we should be there, which is how we think about it in other places, right? Like there are rules for when you go on cable news, like there are rules for what you can put on box without, you know, like that editors enforce on you. That's a whole different conversation. But um, yes, but your point about dialing back is well taken. It can depress ambition. It can depress the idea of busyness as a way of life. It can it's sort of a solvent in some ways. Once you've seen that life doesn't have to be quite like this, then you're aware of what you're doing every day, not being ne not ne necessarily being so great for you. You detach yourselves a, detach yourself a little bit from what you're doing. You see it in a slightly different way. And there are times when I just want to, especially now, given the atmosphere out there, you just want to secede in a way for a while be quiet for a while. You know, I think the big lesson of, of, of that and, and you know, other kinds of sort of extreme-ish mental states or physical states people put themselves in, you know, a 10-day backpacking trip or, or, you know, psychedelics, is this recognition that you can be a very different version of yourself. You can be a very different self in a different context, that, that you are contingent on the world you've set up. And something that I try to do a lot is recognize or, or, or try to watch for when I'm being a version of myself that is really about the place I'm in? And is that a, a good version of myself? So, I mean, part of the, the Twitter stuff, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is, you know, when you wrote that initial piece and it had this kind of little drive by at the top at Vox, I reacted on Twitter in a way that, I mean, it wasn't for the, I think for the um, models of Twitter, like particularly furious, but it was not useful either. It wasn't, an, it wasn't engagement. It was like, like flicking it away. And, you know, and not to put this all on Twitter, I think politics is like this. I think Donald Trump's kind of constantly filling the attentional zone with like things to be angry at. I think there's, you know, Bob Wright has this, this like mindful resistance newsletter, which I think is actually like a really interesting project. And this kind of effort, which is uh, hard to do and mostly I fail at, but is at least good to try to remember to do of asking like, is this like the way I want to be engaging and, and intend to be engaging for my values? Or is this the way I am reacting to the stimuli around me has been, it's a useful thing to ask myself a lot. Yes, I think it's a useful thing for us all to ask. Um, and that's why I've sort of moved towards more um, long form journalism, trying to get to get to the bottom of a subject, you know, like, and spend like two or three months researching, reporting and thinking about it. And I do feel better. But then again, so I just did a 9,000 word piece on gay priests. And, you know, it it doesn't really have any big 
traffic or in at all. But one blog post, essentially, that's provocative will get half a million views. The incentive structures are still not around that because also people are uh, losing the ability to read long form. Well, look, Andrew, I really appreciate you being here and taking the time on this. Um, it, it was a it, really, really nice to actually have this conversation, not quite in person, but it, but at least in a more human way. Well, I'm grateful for you reaching out. And uh, Twitter can be distortive. And uh, and I've certainly only ever meant to tease you occasionally, not to actually. Uh, <laughs> so I'm I'm very gra- glad that we can still be friends and disagree, even though we're our disagreements are really within a relatively narrow sphere. I mean, it's within a conservative liberal sphere, I think. Yeah, it's something. Well, we and you know we'll have we'll have time to time to explore them more fully in a future episode. But Andrew Sullivan, thank you very much. Ezra, thanks so much for having me. All right. That is the the discussion. So thank you to Andrew for being here. I want to add a thought to this because it, it relates to something I've been thinking about trying to articulate more clearly about the show in general for a while, which is there can be a real construct in this kind of conversation that everything is supposed to be a debate and debates are supposed to be won or lost. Um, somebody is supposed to be right or wrong. Like somebody gets really burned or disproven or, you know, if you're headlining something about a John Oliver segment, defenestrated. Um, it all it's all very like who's up and who's down. And 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 to, to use a term Andrew uses a bunch of times, zero sum. And something that you know, in this conversation, but 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 across a show that I, I, I hope people bring to it, because it is the way I try to think about it, is that rarely is anybody actually right or wrong. I mean, it happens. Uh, flat earthers are usually wrong. Um, but a lot of the times, one, we don't know. But two, it's really possible for somebody to be, I don't know, 80 percent wrong and 20 percent right or 80 percent right and 20 percent wrong. And maybe that 20 percent is really important. Uh, maybe somebody has an idea that like actually is not true, but the part of it that is true is really worth bringing into your own ideas. And I felt that a lot in this conversation. There's definitely a lot of places where I part from Andrew. I think you heard that. But it doesn't mean he's wrong in those places or totally wrong, right? It may be 60-40 or 70-30 or maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Anyway, th- this may just sound a little circular. Obviously, this is true. But I think so much of political media and political conversation is about hiding this truth, is about suggesting that you know everything is always one way or the other, that it's worth calling it out. Um, I bring if anybody's on this show, it's because I think they have ideas worth listening to. And um, I sometimes will get emails saying something like, oh, you know, I really you know, you really should have like you nailed them on this point. And, you know, often I'll take a point to where I think it's been fully expressed and you know, I'm not trying to throw somebody out the window here. It's my show. It has my name on it. It's not exactly uh, a fair fight. But what I am trying to do is build my model of the world and 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 give, you know, those of you who are listening an opportunity to build yours too. And so, you know, my hope in having these episodes with people I disagree with, whether they're to my right or to my left or somewhere kind of totally in political space, is that even in these spaces where, you know, there's contention, that there's also value um, and coming to the show in a spirit, not of I'm really going to I'm really going to show him. But um, but but, you know, let's see what's actually there. And even if you don't want to take everything from the buffet, there's at least a little bit from the buffet worth taking is, I think, valuable. Um, I bring it up on this show. Uh, I think Andrew's an extremely um, articulate presenter of his views. So I, I think it's pretty obvious with him. But I just think it's a it's a 
general thing that gets lost in the constructs of politics lately. And that I think it's worth calling out that self-consciously here, I would like that not to be the way um, people see it and certainly is not the way I try to approach it. You know, coming into the show means you're sort of in the circle of maybe not people I agree with, but people I think are worth hearing out. And, you know, sometimes like the 30 percent someone is right about is the most important 30 percent for making your own view of the world more correct. Uh, so I hope, you know, uh, people come to it in in that spirit. And I hope I'm able to host conversations that feel like they're in that spirit. Um, so thank you if you've made it this far, which would be an amazing, uh, remarkable feat. <laughs> thank you for being part of this. Thank you to my engineer at Berkeley, Topher Ruth, to my producer, Jeff Gelb. Desert Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 